and welcome to the To Mom podcast. My name is Valerie Propsfeld. Please join me as we encourage mothers to live their verb while also practicing self-grace. The goal of this podcast is to promote love as an action and live life more authentically. Just think about it. In five generations from now, you will have approximately 30 descendants and the number keeps getting larger and larger. We have more power as moms than we realize. Motherhood, in my opinion, is the most important job in the world. Hi moms, thanks for joining. I have another amazing returning guest for us today. First, the mission of Two Mom is to Love is to support, encourage, and empower each other as imperfect moms to love as a verb. Join us and subscribe, share, and follow. Welcome to our community. My returning guest with me today is Rena Delanerol. Rena is a maternal mental health therapist and a mother of two young children. You may recognize her from episode 24, A Therapist's Perspective on Mental Health. It's a great episode, and if you haven't checked it out, I highly encourage it. And then off air, Rena and I spoke more and just learned so much about her unique background, and I knew I wanted to have her back on the show to talk some more. Rena is a licensed clinical professional counselor, as well as certified rehabilitation therapist with an equine therapy focus. In addition, Rena holds a bachelor's in archaeology and pulls a lot of that background into working with her clients. Welcome, Rena. Thank you so much for being with us on the show today. Thank you for having me here again. Absolutely. I am so thrilled that you're able to join us, and I know there's so many things that I want to talk with you about. A couple episodes ago, I was actually able to interview Sandy Molesky uh, with the Legacy Ranch, and Rena, you had introduced me to the Legacy Ranch, which I'm fell in love with it. Yeah. Um, Horses are incredible facilitators for therapy, um, and they... They're so diverse in how they can be used, as, as I'm sure Sandy spoke in, in her interview. Um, you can use them for something as simple as art therapy and then something as complex as physical or occupational therapy. That's amazing, Rena. I absolutely love it. There's so many things that the Legacy Ranch offers. And if you're listening to this, I highly encourage you to check out episode 38, The Power of Equine Therapy with Sandy Molesky. She is the CEO of the Legacy Ranch, and she talks all about all of its benefits and um, just an amazing, amazing organization. Rena, what do you do at the Legacy Ranch? Uh, I I volunteer my time um, a lot, but I also facilitate and manage their veteran program. Uh, And we are working towards making programs available for veterans at either very low cost or free. Um, and a lot of that is is based on fundraising, donations, and we'd really like to build up that program so that we're able to offer uh, more programming for veterans, whether that's mounted or non-mounted. Um, I currently am running a program for female veterans where they're doing riding and um, connection with horses to build social skills and to decrease some possible anxiety and depression symptoms. Um, but we we have so many ideas that we would like to put out as far as part of a veteran program. Um, but that's where I'm at right now. And I will come in and train the horses sometimes. And, you know, I'm kind of a Jill of all trades there. And I love how you said Jill of all trades. I've never heard of that before. I always say Jack of all trades. <laughs> 
Yes, you very much are a Jill of all trades. You told me so many things that you do. And I thought this your archaeology background was so fascinating. And I, I've always enjoyed learning about archaeology. But you've done a lot of it. Like you've done archaeology research and digs. And you've learned a lot and tie a lot of your therapy into it. And can you tell us more about that and, and what you've learned along the way? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, archaeology and and it falls under the header of anthropology, um, which is typically four disciplines. Um, you have cultural anthropology, uh, biological anthropology, um, and social anthropology, and then uh, linguistics also falls under there too. Um, and so I've been very interested in bioarchaeology um, or archaeology as a whole, um, and then you have anthropology. So um, I've always been really interested in people's stories before I uh, did my undergraduate. I was really, I'm, I'm a writer. I love to read. I love hearing people's stories. And um, that's also kind of my draw into therapy and psychology is, is how people exist in this world and, and how their stories are told. So archaeology really appealed to me for the same reason. And um, a lot of what I have learned through anthropology and, and psychology is that for a long time, they were kind of at odds. Like, one focused on human variety in a cultural perspective, so a larger um, sort of platform and looking at social constructs, and then psychology looks at the individual. Mm. And obviously, we are merging those now um, more cohesively and understanding that the person is built both by their cultural factors and their socialization, as well as what's going on internally. Mm. Um, and so I, I pull a lot from anthropology, from truly cultural anthropology, when I work with clients to understand um, sociocultural background, um, why they've made certain choices that they've made, um, how to understand them in the context of the um, social life they're living in now, especially if that's been different from how they've been raised. Um, Adlerian psychology, which is a sort of a theory and a discipline within uh, therapy or within psychology, has a lot of aspects of anthropology in it because it looks at, you know, your family system. It looks at where you are in your birth line and the impact of socialization on on our psyche and on our psychology. So hmm. a lot of what I bring in is just um, trying to understand the person completely, not just what's going on in their brain, but like I said, socially. Um, archaeology is, is a really interesting field because it's a combination. I think a lot of it's anthropology, but it's also history. And history, we understand typically is like what we under, uh, what is written down um, if it was pre-film um, mm. or what was recorded, recorded history. Um, anthropology, archaeology is a little bit of both. It's, it's recorded history, but it's also what's happening to people's lives who maybe didn't get their story told. And I have a lot, I'm very interested in that. Um, and my focus when I was doing archaeology was in human remains um, and skeletal osteology, so osteology skeletal um, remains in grave sites. And I focused a lot on wartime um, during the medieval period. But that's not super interesting for, for what I do for mental health. I, I know that, Rena, you have said that uh, with maternal mental health and archaeology, anthropology, that that helps um, when you think about it, like with um, creating villages and creating support. Can you um, talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. Uh, so being that being a mother and a parent is obviously inherent in all of our cultures, there's a lot of really interesting ways to look at motherhood, parenthood, and how 
cultures before us or cultures around us are also doing that that maybe differ from how uh, we experience it in, in our Western Western world. Um, and evolutionarily, we as humans have adapted so that we are no longer obviously on four feet, we're bipedal on two feet. And that means that the birthing process is a little bit different than it is for animals. Our pelvis makes it such that it's very difficult for us to give birth alone. So that in and of itself suggests that birthing should be a social experience. Um, mm -hmm. And we do that in our medical model. So that's not to say that it doesn't exist, but it's a communal event. It's something where when you are giving birth, when you're laboring for a long time, you need the support of other people, not even for the act of birth, whether that's vaginal or cesarean, um, you need support. And so in a lot of cultures, that continues after the birth because mother has to recover, baby is new to the world. And there's just, there's so many things that we as humans thrive on socially that is so inherent during the postpartum period. Mm -hmm. um, and we live in a fairly isolationist sort of society in many ways. And the postpartum experience for a lot of women or birthing persons is that they are isolated. You're in the hospital for a couple of days and then you're just kind of sent home and like, good luck. We'll see you when we see you for that six week appointment. And mm -hmm. that does seem to contradict how not only um, people in the past were, were experiencing postpartum birth and postpartum, but also kind of genetically or excuse me, evolutionarily, like how we're built to experience both. Yeah. Absolutely. It kind of reminds me of like how we're not really programmed to be on our phones all the time either. Like there's so much of society right now that's just so different from how we, you know, for thousands of years have really connected with each other. What would you recommend? Um, I know you did in your uh, previous episode, you talked a little bit about like obtaining villages and um, it, it remind us like what would be, you know, like maybe if you do feel like that isolation um, after giving birth and, you know, like just feel like you don't really have that much support, where can we or where can you reach out to for that? Yeah, there are fortunately, it is becoming more of a supported activity to be able to go out and find what you might call your village or your tribe. And so social media is very, it's a mixed bag, but yes. it, it can be very helpful in that way. So finding either other mom groups. So like if there's a Facebook page, even just for your town, so like I live in Mokina and there's a mom's group in Mokina and people are always posting, you know, activities that are going around, going on in, in the town itself, but also that's a place to meet other people, not just moms, but dads as well, or partners as well, because it can be isolating for both sets of parents or both groups of parents, um, not just the birthing uh, person. So um, using social media to, to that extent, I think is very helpful. Um, identifying things that are important to you that are outside of just your role as a mother, um, because that becomes so overwhelming and it becomes so um, all-encompassing but that's not only who you are. You were somebody before you became a mother and you're somebody mm. after you became a mother. That may be your most important role in life, but that's not your only one. And so taking the time and slowing yourself down if you can, and you have the ability to do so and figuring out like, what did I enjoy? What brought me pleasure when I was you know, not a mom? Is that, does that still have a meaningful place in my life? And if not, that's okay too. That's something where you reassess and like, 
well, you know, I really enjoy, um, you know, if you have a toddler, I really enjoy doing art with my toddler. And, you know, I'm really enjoying doing things that are hands-on. Maybe I want to do like a paint and sip or something like that. Mm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I love that. And I know uh, Rena uh, touches base a lot on this on episode 24. So definitely check that out because I think that is so helpful, Rena. I mean, uh, when I think about like as a mom, like how I've kind of evolved and there's um, certain things that I'll talk about sometimes about like when I travel, I really just enjoy exploring. So whether that be around the Chicagoland area or if I get the opportunity to go somewhere else, like really just embracing that. And I noticed recently I had uh, the opportunity to go to Arizona um, and meet some of my actually met some family that I didn't even know existed, which was kind of fun. Um, but also you know, my brother moved out there. Yeah, it was just super neat. But at the same time, I think this mountain hiking culture is very interesting. Like Arizona has a lot of mountains that people hike and I don't know, I need to get better shoes because I can hike up a little better than I could hike down. <laughs> it's a lot more challenging to hike down for me. But anyway, the what I noticed though, and I've done this a couple of times now, is that you meet strangers along the way of hikes. And it's really a bonding experience that I thought was just something that I don't really see as much. Like, but you truly make like almost like a hiking village up a mountain because we're at, we're, you know, we're trying to get up to the top of this mountain, but we're also experiencing life along the way. And you may or may not even like see them after you're done hiking, but it stays with you. It sticks with you. And, um, I just uh, think that's just so interesting with how humans, like we all are kind of programmed to have that little village have that community. And especially if you're doing something you love, like for me, like I love exploring and I have that community, it just really fills my cup up. And that may not be the same for everyone, but, you know, trying to figure out what that is that, um, I know like with my eight year old, she just turned eight recently and I decided to take her out for tea. And that was kind of fun because, no, I just don't really do those things anymore. But there was a piano in the background. I used to be, I still am, I guess, a musician, but mm-hmm. I haven't done it in a while. But just to kind of like bringing those parts of me into, you know, showing my eight-year-old, oh yeah, you know, here's a piano playing. I used to play the flute. You know, let's do that sometime. And it gives mm-hmm. these conversations. It's so uplifting. Yeah. I, I think a lot of times we especially when it's our first child, but even subsequent kids after that. Yeah. This idea of like motherhood or parenthood happens in a vacuum. Obviously yeah. that's not the case, mm-hmm. but such a huge life event as it should be. And it's it comes with the ups and the downs. And there's so much that kind of goes on for us psychologically. And I think sometimes we do get encouraged to like just be the mom or whether you're a working mom so you're the working mom that yeah. also comes home to her kids and you're doing all of the things or you're a stay-at-home mom and you're doing all of the things and but parenthood doesn't happen in a vacuum there are yeah. things that exist outside of that and being able to tie that into who we are as parents can be really healthy and it can also help us build like you were saying with your daughter build those bonds and relationships and things that we value giving those to our kids Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Rena, um, kind of switching gears for a second, I really wanted to touch base with you also on, I think, a very important um, topic that's not talked about a lot, but it's it's important of as far as like trauma and grief and 
Um, I know like with your anthropology, archaeology background, that's something that you have um, kind of uh, researched and, and seen a lot of. Um, can you talk with us more about that and like what you've learned and how we can bring that to society today and the knowledge of, mm-hmm. of all that? Yeah. Um, so grief, trauma and grief, as, as we talked about in our prior episode, are, are complicated. Um, how we experience trauma, how we experience grief is so subjective to how we were brought up, our family, our cultural beliefs, and then just internally how we exist as humans. No one grieves exactly the same way. And as with most things in in our life with social media, we like to put things um, into categories and we like to put things into nice little boxes and grief doesn't exist that way. Um, It's not linear. We like to think that it is, um, and we know um, Elizabeth Kubler Ross came up with the seven the, the stages of grief. And although they are still relevant and they are um, we do recognize them as portions of grief, they don't happen in the stages that we used to think they did. Um, you can oscillate between anger, acceptance, sadness, apathy, and it, it goes in waves. And certain parts you do accept, other parts sometimes you never accept. Mm-hmm. And that awareness and sort of slowing down of the process is is very helpful. And I think it's very therapeutic for people who are grieving and told to grieve a certain way um, or, you know, your grief doesn't look like it's supposed to. Um, and whether that's grief for losing someone and, and literal death, or if that's grieving who you were before you were a mother or grieving uh, a trauma experience or even just grieving a friendship that has have ended. Um, there's no, there's no like one way to grieve. It, you know, with that, um, your, your question about anthropology and so you know grief study is there is a there are cultural anthropologists who do study grief across cultures uh, both both historically and currently and it is interesting to see how very similar we can be as humans in our grief and then how very dissimilar we can be in how we process grief and mm. one of the things that um, I think is really important and came from my anthropology background is that as a therapist I'm a death positive therapist so I believe in talking about death. I believe in talking about the experience of losing somebody or being afraid of your own mortality or your own death. Um, I think the more we shine light on it, the more ownership we can have over that fear and the less scary it becomes. And we exist in a culture, especially in the Western world, where death is kind of pushed off to the side and it's sterilized and it's away from us. And for a lot of cultures, including our own prior to the Industrial Revolution, um, death was in home. We took care of our dead. And we don't do that anymore. So there's a lot of misconceptions about just even things as simple as like the safety of dead bodies. And we don't want to touch that. Or you you might get a disease from a dead body. Well, diseases have left dead bodies because the body is dead. Um, There is no more of a a host for it. But Mm. things like that, like we don't, we're separated from that in a way that I think also parallels motherhood in some ways, that we're separated sometimes from the bodily experience of being a mother or the uh, social ex- experience of having that village. Um, and so, and I know we kind of touched on this briefly last time, but a lot of times in therapy, we intertwine talking about death and talking about, you know, birth and life, because sometimes they they do coincide, unfortunately. And having that awareness and ability and openness to talk about it um, does improve the grief process. I know you had mentioned something um, about your Irelanding, um, mm-hmm. there was, um, you had said something about like the placement 
of um, the grave sites. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. Um, so in, in 2009, I went to Ireland on an archaeological dig and um, the site itself was, as in with most things in Ireland, um, layered with history upon history and um, time period upon time period because it is an island and everything just kind of happens in a very small space. Mm. So um, it, the, the site itself dated back to a Neolithic site. And then on top of that, you had um, Celtic, then you had some um, early medieval, high medieval, Renaissance, and then going on. And and the interesting thing is before it was a uh, Christian site, it was, like I said, a Neolithic site and then a, a Celtic site as well. And it it's a held a very important uh, strategic point uh, along a river. So it made a lot of sense that society saw that sort of jutting out in the river. I'm like, okay, we got we to gotta build our stuff here because then we can protect the lake that goes here and in and out in the river. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, you know, from a psychological perspective, like, a lot of people saw them were like, yeah, we want to we want to build our set of settlement there. But what we were finding was once it became a uh, Christian site and a, and a cemetery, um, there was a prior Celtic building there, um, early medieval building called a Hull House. And it sat to the side prior to it being consecrated ground. And when it became a graveyard, many uh, about a century later, um, they kind of. Uh, bisected the the old building and so half of it was on the other side of the consecrated ground the other part was in the cemetery proper and what we were finding were a lot of fetal bones up against the wall that separated the graves grave site to um, the non-consecrated ground up against this wall of, of this building prior building and so we were doing this dig and we were finding all these fetal bones and it was very interesting because from a purely scientific, just looking at the data, um, we could see that a majority of them were um, either preterm or they were very early after birth. So possibly stillbirth. We, from the skeletal records, we're not able to tell exactly what happened, but you can make some educated guess, guesses. And the human part to me was, was synthesizing that information and saying the likelihood is that these were um, preterm or stillbirth or children that died very young um, that weren't able to be baptized and therefore were not able to be buried in in the consecrated ground of the graveyard. But these parents, these mothers, these the people that loved these babies wanted them to be as close to consecrated ground <clears throat> as possible. And that tells a human story. It's not just the human remains, the data. It's what we think might be happening here. And of course, everything is subjective. You know, everything is, is subject to like, well, we just don't know, but we can assume. And we've seen this in other places, too, where they do have records. Um, but yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it's it does tell that story. And those stories are just the power of story is seems to really go through time. And I remember with Christmas time or the holidays or whatever you celebrate there is you know that we just um you were recording like in the new year now but when we just were um doing all of those kind of festivities whatever that is but I feel like that gives an opportunity to kind of return to our relatives and prior generations and I found it incredible that storytelling and telling those stories regulates heart rates in the same way like there's studies out there that say you know, like you can be reading or listening to the same story um, at different times, but you're still have the same 
physiological response. You know, like when you're saying about like community and coming together and, you know, these hard things to talk about, like it's, it's hard for me and for many people to talk about losses and stuff like that. But at the same time, kind of just having someone there with you, whatever that is, it's, it seems to be that human experience and been like with animals, like I, I'm learning more about animals, most like they like elephants. I don't know if you're familiar, you know, with elephants and group, but it seems to be similar, similar where like we really just, but yeah, it, it's, um, it does really share a story. No, Rena, when you mentioned uh, the whole house, is that similar to a mead house? Like, uh, with, I remember in high school, we read the book Beowulf or something like that. Is that the same thing? No, it's a little different. Um, a hull house is a structure in which the first floor, possibly the second floor, um, there's no doors or windows. And um, so stone. You, typically it's a stone structure. And then the second or, or subsequent floors above it are wood. And the way that it functions is it's more of a defensive building um, or an offensive building really is, you know, you get in, so they, um, depends on the building, but Basically, if your settlement is under attack or your area is under attack, um, you go to the hull house and you climb up a ladder, you get inside, and then you remove the ladder. And then the people who are uh, coming to attack can't get into the building. Um, so it's a, it's a protective building. Um, they, they do exist in Scandinavian areas. Um, the ale houses, the mead houses, um, those were more typically uh, social gathering places. Not that Hull Houses weren't, but the function of the Hull House really was to be protective. Mm, okay. That's interesting. I when I first started writing, and this was years ago, I there was um the quote from gosh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but it's B-E-D-E. Is it B B B D or Betty or something? B. Yeah. yeah. Uh bead. Okay. So there was a quote from Bede that I don't recall what century that was, but it was essentially, I think, when they were trying to um, spread uh, Christianity. But there was a passage that talked about the sparrow and a sparrow flying in through the meat house. And um, Mm -hmm. Bede was talking about, you know, uh, what comes before life and after life. And we really don't know. Like, we don't know what he he compared it to a storm like a sparrow flies through winter storm and then briefly experiences light warmth in this meat house and then Mm -hmm. flies just as quickly out back into the storm and he's comparing it you know to uh, christianity but also at the same time it made me think about like the warmth and the light and how Mm -hmm. what i can control right now is is love, is that warmth, is that light? Because I don't know, you know, I can, I can have faith or whatever that is, like whatever, you know, um, you believe, but what I know right now is love is there's love and warmth in, in this life and in this present moment and kind of keeping that in mind. Um, kind of is what keeps me going sometimes. Yeah. There's a kind of a, I don't know if it's social media specific, but on social media, there's this Instagram story or Twitter, or, or I guess not Twitter anymore, but um, it's called a glimmer. Uh-huh. And I've used this a couple times with clients and it's the opposite of a trigger. It's a small 
thing that occurs in your day and usually it's unexpected that just feels good. It feels warm and comfortable and safe and it brings you maybe a moment of joy. And so finding those glimmers, like what what is that for you and, and kind of having yourself, your your senses sort of tuned into, oh, that that was a glimmer. I didn't think it was going to be, but it was. And it could be something, you know, very simple, like a warm sun on a cold day. Or it could be something more meaningful, like a hug from a friend or, you know, seeing your baby smile and laugh. And so we focus a lot on our triggers and things that upset us and and understandably so. Um, but we could also put that attention and and focus into where are the moments of joy, peace and safety um, in our days. Yeah, absolutely. I remember you saying that the, the glimmers and I love that. I, I, I think that's so helpful. Um, you know, thinking about grounding for me, sometimes like mm-hmm. if I'm triggered, I do need those glimmers and strengthening um, those mental pathways. Uh, so like if I am, you know, with that highway, like if I'm frustrated or anxious, um, you know, there's those triggers and that's a very quick uh, trigger mm-hmm. in my brain. But I would like to increase the traffic, increase that back road of glimmers. And the more I use it, the more I exercise it, I can be reminded when I'm triggered of glimmers. And that's so much easier said than done. But I think the first step is being aware of that and then practicing it and those baby steps. Um, I recently was talking um, with a friend about just triggers and trying to like trying just I don't know I've always been so fascinated about grounding myself because I think that's a big thing for me like grounding and um positive events in my life and for some reason I don't know I feel like a lot of people can relate to this but target is positive for me (laughs) um so but also like not just you know just the basic target stuff like um I really I I used to work um at the Target clinic and uh, as a nurse practitioner. And I was pregnant at the time. It was my first pregnancy. And I just remember walking around the aisles with that, you know, like when you're pregnant and just that feeling of anticipation and just the excitement. And it was such a fleeting stage. But every time I go in Target now, it reminds me of that, like the smells and the sights and the sound, but those type of things, you know, um, and obviously, like, there's other things that can be different. And, like, that's kind of a lighthearted yeah. one. But at the same time, sometimes we do need that lightheartedness uh, to counteract mm-hmm. sometimes uh, heavy mm-hmm. things that are a part of life. Like, life is hard sometimes. And, uh, um, you know, we will have ups and downs. Yeah. And, and, you know, to your point, and kind of looping this back to grief, there's, sometimes there's humor that exists in, in grief. And sometimes we categorize that as morbid or, you know, like a little, little off color, but again, the way that we grieve, and again, it doesn't have to be death necessarily, but it can be death adjacent or just something that is uh, causing us to feel grief. A lot of times we get into that mindset of, I have to grieve a certain way, or it looks a certain way, or I've seen it on TV a certain way. Um, but sometimes things just make you laugh. And and sometimes it's laughter in a sense, in, in like, a, this is also ridiculous that we're all dressed up like this, like this person who has passed wouldn't want us to be somber. And then I, it's just funny to me. Or it's something, you know, maybe truly funny um, or, or humorous. Um, but 
allowing those moments of if something feels funny, laugh or, or, or experience it. You don't ignoring it or pushing it away sometimes isn't healthy. It, it, you're allowed to feel all the things when it comes to grief, when it comes to love, when it comes to all of these really big emotions and experiences. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad you said that because, yeah, it is. like um, It reminds me of one of my first episodes I, I talked with um, uh, Jason Cottrell. He was, um, he's in Britain mm-hmm. and um, talks a lot about celebrating life. And, um, you know, sometimes, yeah, like there was like a party someone he knew through as opposed to a funeral because mm-hmm. it's like, um, you know, they wanted to celebrate their lives. And, and I, I think that unfortunately i think with language in in general or at least with the english english language there's just not enough words to describe everything like that we feel and it's okay to feel not like what society tells you you should feel and i think that's so much more common than we give it credit for like we're saying well this isn't normal to feel this way or this is you know, I, I'm, I'm weird or whatever it is. Cause I'm, I'm feeling this, but, it, but that's being human. We just, we don't have those words and embracing that all of us are different. And I guess going back to like my Arizona trip, cause I, it's on my mind because I just mm-hmm. returned, but like the saguaro cactus, there's so many different, the ways that they stand, like some are stand straight tall. Some like I have arms coming out. Some are, um, leaning in certain ways, but they're also beautiful. Like the, there's beauty in the imperfection and the uniqueness of everyone. Right. And uh, yeah, coming together with all of that. It's okay to be messy sometimes. It is. Life is messy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what makes it beautiful. Like the messy, beautiful life. I feel like <laughs> it's so chaotic, but at the same time, especially like with young kids, mm-hmm. my gosh. <laughs> Rena, so um, I, as we wrap up, I want to give you the opportunity to tell our listeners where they can find you and also if there's anything else that you would like to share with us. Uh, I, I'm a therapist at Counseling Works. We have offices in Naperville, Lamont, and Frankfurt. And um, you, can, you can reach me by, via email, rena at counselingworks.com. And um, I guess maybe the, the sort of parting thought from today's episode would would be about sort of that authenticity of experiencing what you're experiencing in the moment and that whether you're parenting uh whether you're going through trauma grief whatever it is you're going through um that all emotions are okay um we've been taught a lot of us as especially as millennials we've been taught like certain emotions are not allowed and that's not healthy all emotions are allowed it's what we do with them it's how we uh, manage our behaviors and emotional regulation, but the emotions themselves are okay. Um, so if you're going through something that feels very difficult or you are being told to feel a certain way about something um, that you're going through, just know that it's it's okay to feel all the things, all the, the spectrum of, of human emotions, um, even if other people are saying, well, you shouldn't be angry about this or you shouldn't be sad. Um, and whether that's finding a therapist or somebody that um, will validate those, those feelings for you, um, you, you have every right to do that. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think that's so important. 
Well, thank you so much, Rena. I really, I love our conversations and I really uh, appreciate all the time that you have. And um, I hope that everyone out there listening has a wonderful day. And thank you so much again, Rena.